Welcome to ANC. It's great to be here. I'm going to try to bring the energy up for the 9.30 because I've noticed a trend. I show up for the 11. I practice at the 9.30. I know, right? Listen. Hi, Brittany. How are you? I see you. Um, we're going to need to probably ask some of the 11 o'clock folks in the fall to shift to the 9.30 because we're having a problem in the 11. We're already full and the balcony's filling up and it's August. And this is when nobody comes to church at ANC. So this is a lot of nobodies in here. Look around. Look around. Anyway, we're going to have to shift some things around. It's great to be here. We're delighted that you t- have taken a risk by darkening the door of this little church of all places. Um, it's no small thing, and I, sometimes it's fair to just acknowledge this fact, that it's no small thing to wander into a church on South Lamar in South Chicago, um, especially given some of the things that some of us are surviving. And I'm just going to call it what it is, right? Some of the, I had some interesting conversations even today before we started service. Some of the, or, the ordeals that our lives are, that we are surviving, makes it really remarkable that we would even give church a chance. And I think that's, that's interesting to acknowledge sometimes. But we see you and we're interested in your stories. And I mean that for all of you, okay? We're interested in your stories. We also know that some of you are not ready to bring that. So whatever level of anonymity you might need to hide in for a while until community to you feels safe, then you do that. It's not easy to do in a tiny church. It's much easier to do in my previous job where we had 45,000 people in Lakewood Church. It's easy to hide out there. It's not that easy to do around here. Um, but whatever level of anonymity you need as you ease back into people doing life together, you take that. Push back. Find that space. Because I think we're starting to tickle now some connections to parts of the community in South Austin that desperately need to know that God still loves unconditionally and that there are people who still live that way. And so we want to be that. So bring your story. Bring all of your story. Bring who you are. We are interested. If you find yourself rejecting institutional Christian community, you're in good company. I think that's what makes us a church. And yet here we are, right? Isn't that odd? A little ironic. Anyway, welcome to all. You all matter. Trey, where are you? The clock has not started. Let's work on that clock. Otherwise, I'm going to be here all day. Guys, I'm so delighted that my favorite researcher is actually in the building. Kathy, would you just wave? Kathy Baldock is here. Her, her traveling, traveling companion in crime, Ed, I don't know Ed's last name, but we're just going to put Sheeran on the marquee. Maybe that'll, you know, maybe that'll gain some, you know, break the, but we had dinner last night at a very high-priced, over, overpriced place in town, and we all slept horribly because you can't eat 22 ounces of steak at 1030 at night. Just trust me. Gary, don't try it. Gary's like, nope, not going to do that. Anyway, that's, that's an inside joke, Gary. But it's great to have Kathy. Kathy is going to kick off for us what's going to start as kind of a, an experiment with little two-day mini conference intensives. Um, she's going to do that tonight and tomorrow night at 6.30. And I'm telling you, if you're interested at all in the, in the subject, in the overlap of the subject of ecclesiology, so the study of the church and theology and what that means for the gay community in America, and around the world, I'm telling you, you don't want to miss this. Um, I've read everything I can read, and those 500 pages are unique. There's something about Kathy's brain that is able to layer things like this such that you go, oh my God, I never understood that what's going on in the Supreme Court in the 1940s has a reason why it ends up in our Bible and everybody thinks God said that. And the reality is there's some historical context. And as Ed did last night, he can drop a Bible from 1581 on the table at Capitol Grill. Yep, that's in Martin Luther's Bible, or similar. He can drop it on the table and show you how we've created categories because of cultural 
things speaking through the text. Guys, we've been peeling culture away from the text for as long as we've been at this game. They call us heretics. I think it's love, and you want to hear this research. You just want to hear it. That's the best commercial I can give. Kathy's going to bolt and go to John's church up at University Methodist after this. So, but if you want to hang out with Kathy, it's fast and furious. It's worse than a fire hydrant. It reminds me of graduate school. I mean, it's going to come fast and hard. So bring your notes. We're going to capture it on video. You don't want to miss tonight. That's the best I can do for a commercial. It's great to be here. Um, We're going to track back with Jesus as he quotes the Old Testament. We're getting to the end of this series. I'm already panicked because I don't know where we're going to go next, Larry. I don't know what's up. I don't know what's, what could we do that would be this much fun. So maybe Larry's got some ideas. Maybe, maybe Keith has some ideas. But I'm panicking because we've got like five left. And then we'll have to figure out something else amazing to do. Trey did a good job last, a great job, I think, last week helping us understand some of the distinctives between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And these, these are people that turn up in our New Testament around, especially in the book of Matthew. They turn up often. He did a great job of pointing out how they read the text differently, right? So glad nobody does that today. They read the text with their agenda and found ways to grab handles to sort of bolster the way they saw the world. And it's interesting that these two warring factions within Judaism at the time of Jesus read the text differently. I think he did a really good job with that. It hasn't occurred to me to say that, but that's really good. That's good work. They each were supporting their own angle. And again, they're the only ones who do that. Christians don't do that these days. So you might think that the Pharisees would be delighted that Jesus just delivers a smackdown to the Sadducees in front of all the people assembled in Jerusalem at the time. You might think that that would be really cool, right? Because they prioritize the Pentateuch over the prophets and all of this different stuff. The problem is, is they're going to need each other, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as they gather around and they convict this wayward, shifty rabbi who's messing up their city at the wrong time. They're going to need each other because they sit together on the Sanhedrin. Just think of the joint houses of Congress. I don't know. They're going to need to deliver a very strong sanction and censure of this young rabbi. In fact, they're going to wash their hands as he shuffles off to a criminal's death. And so there probably isn't as much gloating within the text as one might expect when your enemy is publicly humiliated in front of the crowd you're trying to appeal to. But that's what's going on in the text, in the background text of Matthew 22. Trey said it last week, and it bears repeating, the Sanhedrin is in sight now for Jesus. He knows what's coming. It's amazing to me that most of his followers are still surprised by the fact that he's actually going to be expected to give his life for this gospel of freedom that he's preaching. Matthew 22 is chock full of data and detail on the legalists, right? And now you feel that rise in your heart. We all share a common disdain for the legalists, don't we? It's full of data that just stacks the deck against the legalists, the fundamentalists, the stuck, the uber Spiro crowd that are already neck deep in a categoric rejection of this Messiah and his gospel, rejection of his teachers, of his followings. But most importantly, I'm thinking of the whole chapter of Matthew 22, a total rejection of his invitation to a banquet that heaven is setting in the world that's impossibly large. They've rejected it, the political establishment the, the religious establishment. All we have to do is reassemble chapter 22. Remember, these, the, these books are not written with verses and chapters. That's a very late invention. This is a flow. This is a narrative that Matthew is recording. All we have to do is go back and hold it all together to remember that this is very much about a banquet being set in the world where the original invitees turned their nose up at it. But heaven is relentless. It won't stop with a rejected invitation. It will pursue And I think Jesus is painting a picture. The authorities are leveling their best indictments with hopes to convict. 
But as you can see, Jesus brings some of his own accusations. And here's what I think matters most for us. And you're going to hear me on this in the next couple of weeks. Any way we read this chapter other than inserting ourselves in the role of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is dangerous. We all have the enemies in the text. We love to hide behind the disciples. Even when they're dense and lacking understanding, we hold it all in historical balance and we think, well, we're we're clearly the followers of Jesus. And what I'm going to suggest to us today is that it's dangerous to read the text this way. Every tribe that thought it was uniquely right and exclusively right as over against every other tribe ever has always done that with this text. So be forewarned. Shorthand version of that, it's unacceptably self-righteous and short-sighted to think of the religious leaders in this text as anyone other than us. So hang with me, this is going to get dark before it gets light. You see, it's the willingness to curl one's nose up in arrogance at someone else's version of heaven's heart in the world that Jesus is systematically undermining and destroying. That's what needs to be crucified is that version of we're right, you're wrong, God speaks through us only. Whatever he said to you is outside the pale. This is what needs to die between two thieves. Hear me as clearly as you are able, and I'm getting a little bit serious, Keith, so you help me back this down. We'll come up here and rescue this congregation in a minute if this gets crazy. Hear me as clearly as you, as you can. Fundamentalism in all her forms is the problem with humanity. Yes. F- thank you, Kathy. Yes. All the way from the desert to say yes, because yes. my 930 crowd has no idea what just happened. Listen to me. Fundamentalism in all her forms is the problem. And if you heard me say Islamic fundamentalism or Jewish fundamentalism or atheist fundamentalism or Jerry Falwell or Franklin Graham, you didn't hear me clearly enough. I'm talking about your fundamentalism and my fundamentalism. Yes, even Jesus-y fundamentalism is too tight a t-shirt for this master. Now watch. Watch where we're going here. Any attempt to manipulate the words of this spiritual master in such a way as to authorize and divinely sanction our airtight fundamentalist view of the world, beliefs and behaviors, any attempt to do that is going to end up choking our neck eventually. We will fall on the words of this master again and again. We will stumble on his teachings and we will be crushed. We are the religious establishment that needs to hear these words today. I get accused often of not preaching sin and conviction in the gospel. Let me tell you what, I got us within the crosshairs today, and I'm feeling this from the Holy Spirit as a culmination to this series. You say, wait a minute, preacher, are you trying to critique the church you're building? Nope, I'm trying to steer it, because we are just another movement, just another iteration. You say, well, it's so different than what I grew up in. Yep, and it's got an expiration date, and the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking, and I'm concerned about what's rising in me, and I'm concerned about what rises in us if we think that we're above all of this because we love all. Don't make me test us. I can describe the prototype of who rolls up in this place that makes you buckle down and hunker down and cross your arms. So, so we're going somewhere serious. You see, I read history. I know that we do things, the way we do things is going to expire and become stale. I'm a student of the church. I've been at this for a while. I'm no genius, but here's what I do know. We almost always perpetrate the same small thinking that caused us to branch off to begin with. We almost always recreate it. Somebody take a breath because you're turning blue. 
When God speaks, you see life results, but ever-changing life, ever-evolving life, life that layers, life that builds, life that won't be controlled, changes the norm and it can't be stopped. Life that always moves into new directions, creating and recreating and on and on and on. And most of us have the capacity of about listening to that for about 40 years and we lock down there and then it moves on and then we are the fundamentalists of our day. You see, God has spoken our name. He's spoken to us. And what that means is if we're not careful, we will become the very next obstacle to the next great thing God wants to do. Because we needed to have drum kits on stage. And by God, my generation fought for it. And we promised the church in the 1980s that if you let us bring our bands on stage, we will usher in the presence of God. And guess what? Did it happen? No more than it would have happened otherwise, probably. It's just another movement. And most of those people are stuck and they're nailed down. And now they won't hear of what's next. And I don't know what's next. Maybe you know. But it's going to be something next. Don't worry, Brandon. Where's Brandon? We're not going to get rid of your drum kit. You're, you're good. <laughs> Here's my point. Here's my point. As soon as this unpredictable master begins to do something, he's moving on to do another thing. And our job is to follow. It's not to own or control or build walls around it. Here's my point. Tribalism isn't dead just, when you, just because you start a new tribe. But we're, we're, we're the group that's the response to that. Yep, yeah, and then that's another tribe. There's got to be a different way of living the gospel in the world. Because here's what I know. Intolerance is intolerance. It doesn't matter where it surfaces. Hate is hate. Tribalism is tribalism, period. And if it rises in you, it needs to be dealt with just like when it rises in the people to whom we responded with a massive exodus knowing that we were right and they were wrong. Hang with me. Hang with me. You have to ask yourself this question. Why does Matthew preserve all of these sideline conversations between the establishment, the teachers of the law and the prophets, and Jesus? These don't turn up so much in Mark. Mark's not terribly concerned with this. Luke kind of passes on and He's tooling for a bit of a different audience, but Matthew brings all these things in. You have to ask yourself the question, why did Matthew preserve this? There might be many theories around that, but my theory is this. I think they knew we'd need this. I think the writers of the scripture knew that we, we, we would need this. Maybe they didn't, but it's just a fancy of mine. I think they knew we would need the mirror that the word is, and we would need its prophetic corrective to every phase of the church that we would ever construct around the teachings of this Messiah. We, were ne we, we have never once outlived the function of this word that brings conviction as a mirror to our souls. Three weeks from today, we're gonna talk about the seven woes in Matthew 23. And I'm just gonna warn you, don't come to church unless you're willing to read those seven woes as warnings against us as a movement, okay? There's no good guys, bad guys here. This gospel will cut both ways and I want to let it. You see, we are them. They are us. We are the same. That's my theory. And if we allow it to, this mounting revelation around Jesus is going to eventually paralyze and neutralize our desire to constantly cull the herd and shuffle the crowd until it fits what we think and believe and how we behave. Which is why a summary of Jesus' worldview is so important, and that's the text we're going to turn to today. The same leaders that have been the target of Jesus' public humiliation and his rebukes as he's teaching in the Passover in Jerusalem at the time, they're now asking him for the cliff notes. What's the bottom line, teacher? What must we do? They wisely ask for his summary statement. And it's, it's, it's as if they say, and now in closing, what are your final arguments, right? He just annihilated their cosmology, their spiritual philosophy, their national identity. It's that moment when Tan rolls into your wardrobe and tells you all of this doesn't fit and you just want to know. Nobody knows what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. 
You just want to come back into your wardrobe and say, my God, what is left to build with? That's queer eye for the, yeah, anyway. It's a great show. What's left, they're asking. Is there anything left that we can do something with? What a wise request to ask of this young master on the record. I've said this before, and I think it's true. I think my only contribution is summary thinking. I'm not smart enough to hold the whole thing. I can't do what Kathy does. I need bottom lines. I need summaries. Give me the bottom line, right? And so this is what Jesus does today in Matthew 22, and let's turn to that now. And the NIV, it says it's the greatest commandment, and it's singular, which is interesting to me because it's actually plural. But let's read these verses. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, right? They're going to rally because their enemies just got smacked. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, which is interesting because it's nothing like it. But Jesus says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And sensing the crowd's need for a summary final statement, he says this, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You know that the authorities are still working the birther controversy at this point. They figure if they can eliminate any sort of ideal birth, where he comes from, they can undermine his authority. They're trying to still kick him out of the city and make him stop appealing to the crowds. If they could just, just undermine where he comes from and how he gives himself authority to say these things, then they could solve their problem, right? But the problem is, is there's a series of events and Jesus is building to something. He feeds the 5,000, he crosses the lake. In some accounts, he walks across the lake, right? Gets to the other side, starts teaching scary, weird things about eating flesh and drinking blood. Then he rolls into the holy city and he's subtlety be damned. He's just pulling up imagery from King David, who the ancients would have called the king of kings. He's pulling up this imagery and he's riding it on a donkey and he's quoting psalms and he's just doing this whole thing and he's mixing it all up together. And he's moving in a direction. What I want us to understand is that there's always going to be a collision between Jesus and whatever religious establishment happens to be in, in vogue at the time. He's welcoming this conflict. You know, it's not healing the sick or touching the demon possessed or even touching the untouchables, the women, the, all of those situations. It's not that that gets him in trouble. Here's what gets him in trouble. He will not affirm our religious effort. He will fail to reward us for our piety and he will welcome people who are supposed to be on the outside. And the establishment's response to Jesus has always been the same. Not on my watch. This is too far. He refuses to reinforce our lock on the center of the universe that where, where God's heart is. He refuses to reinforce our preeminence as the primo tribe, our tribal identity as the most important one. And I hope you can see that this morning that this is us in a way. This is us. Do you see that continuity? Do you see the trap being set for us in Jesus' teaching? You think, no, you're pushing the envelope. Well, that's how I burn all my calories, jumping to conclusions and pushing the envelope. Read with me the passage in Deuteronomy that Jesus quotes very briefly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength is how that's preserved. These commandments I give you today are to, be writ are, are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. Basically, you are to be obsessed with an unending love of God. This is the first idea that Jesus weaves into his answer to their demand for what is your summary statement. But he doesn't stop there, and this is, to me is fascinating. He welds this idea with another about our complete and unrivaled obsession with God, and he basically says, and unless it works itself out with people unconditionally, it is no love of God. 
John would go on to say later, no such thing as love of God without love of enemy and love of neighbor, right? But Jesus brings these two ideas together in his response to their demand for a summary statement. Deuteronomy 6, but then he also brings in Leviticus 19 where it says this, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, Jesus says. Basically, his thinking goes something like this. Love God completely, entirely, and this will be embodied in total and complete unconditional love of others, of your neighbor. Don't don't tinker with that definition in the New Testament. That's a pretty broad word. As you can imagine, it involves more than just your family and those who live on either side of you, right? Your neighbor is actually everyone that's not you. You think, no, no, it can't be that one. That one, no, no, that's maybe the most important neighbor. Everyone, no exceptions, period, is going to be the message of Jesus, including the judgmental ones. And now we're going to loop back to my original thought, including the fundamentalists, including the legalists, including the intolerant ones of whom we tolerate great intolerance. You say, no, this man has lost his mind. That's certainly what the establishment thought. No one is excluded from that neighbor category, and here's the message. And this will be our undoing. What's the bottom line? Love God and demonstrate that love for all. That's it, guys. That's it. Let me say it this way. We don't have to love everyone, just those that belong to God. See the trap there? See the trap? Did you catch that? We're only required to love what belongs to God. That's good news for simple minds like mine because I need to know what's involved there. Basically, nothing gets to be left out. There's this little piece of the chapter of Matthew 22 that to me is worth the whole thing. I'm going to go back a little bit, and we're going to end with this. It's a little exchange. You know, they're barraging him with questions. They want him on the record. They're trying to get him to stumble. This is titled in the NIV, Paying the Imperial Tax to Caesar. Verse 15, Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Thank you, Matthew. You've only said that 10 times already. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others. Just listen to how thick they're laying it on there. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax? to Caesar or not. See it? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used to pay the tax. They brought him a denarius. Of course they did. And he asked them, whose image is on this? And whose inscription? And they answered correctly, Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. This is the ultimate gauntlet. They're vying for the right to say what belongs to God. And time and time again, heaven will not allow earth to declare what comes from heaven or what's on the heart of God. This is what's dying in our text. This is what needs to be crucified. This is the end of any bit, any vestige, any notion of control. And this is what will eventually cost him his life says that Jesus knows their evil intent. What was their evil intent? Simply this, to decide for themselves what belonged to God and what did not. You know, the answer to that question is simple. It's all of it. It all belongs to God. Every single one 
maybe especially the ones that rile you up, confuse you, provoke you, all of it, all of them, even the ones who hate and despise us for loving all of them. We're coming down off a couple of really interesting weeks where we connected a couple of wires and sparks flew. We're still getting emails and texts and stuff from people who happen to notice that somehow we turned up at the pride parade. God, it's been going on forever, guys. It doesn't take courage in 2018 to go to a pride parade. Little church, little ratchet church on the corner of Congress and Fourth shows up with some homemade posters. Thanks, Wade, because I stole his poster. Free dad hugs kind of a deal. Some people were smart enough to have t-shirts made. It doesn't take a whole lot of courage to do that. And somehow that connected enough wires and people are still, they're, just, they're starting to figure out some of us are paying a big price for that. And guess what the gospel says to us? Them too. They're your cousins too. Even the ones that think you've lost your way. I wish I could tell you how deeply I'm having to learn this right now as a pastor. No matter where you look, whether on death row, hear me, under the bridge, on the national sex offenders list, teaching Sunday school, in the corner office of your favorite corporation, in the oval office of your White House, no matter where you look, God's image is stamped on people. There are no exceptions. My question for us today is, can we go that far? We love to love the ones we love. And if we're not careful, we don't even understand how intolerant we can be. And the gospel will crush that in us. Oh, preacher, you don't preach enough sin. Let me tell you, I feel like I'm in the crosshairs these days. I'm being tested. Here's the deal. They all belong to God. This should not be complicated. They all belong to God, everyone. So intolerance and patience and hatred must be dealt with because it runs counter to heaven's activity in the world to redeem it all and have it all back. It will need to die, and the gospel will find it, and it will ask it to die, and that's what's rising up in you. You see, I think the joke is on us. Why do these gospel writers write? Because we need this. We are the establishment, and we are struggling to hang on with this master. He's not an easy guy to follow. We love the gay community in Austin, and we hate the ones who hate us. And hatred is hatred, guys. And the only thing that wins is love. Thank God some Rob Bell lyrics are starting to come through our songs. Did y'all notice that this morning? We, is this like Chris Tomlin Plus to end up with Rob Bell? Love wins. I mean, I know he didn't invent that, but, you know, I, I saw some Rob today. I'm in big trouble. I got to stop. Let's pray.